first, so uh, if I didn't shake your hand, it's, it's because I didn't want to give you that for Christmas, so anyway, just want to say thank you to Drew for leading the singing. He's a real blessing. Man, I'm telling you what, it's a, it's a joy to get to, to be, glad you guys are in town, you're a real blessing, and uh, he can make something that's not fun even be fun. I mean, I was with him the other night, we were uh, doing some loading of a truck, doing some moving, and uh, man, I'm telling you what, that's not really something you want to do, moving big dressers and stuff like that, but he made that even a, a, a riot, so that was, that, was, that was good. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing it is to be here tonight, and I ask that you would help me to have clarity of thought. Lord, thank you for those who have come out to your house tonight. May this be a blessing to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Second Samuel 9 this evening. I was trying to think of a way to introduce this. You know, this is the time of year that... Uh, we're inundated with all kinds of different things that, with, with our knowledge of what Christmas really is about, you think, okay, how, how is that, what's that got to do with Christmas? Some of it we're kind of like, okay, we can, we can deal with that, but some of the things are just like, okay, this is off the wall. You think of uh, songs like uh, Dominic the Donkey. It's a, cute, it's, it's a cute song. I love it, I, you know, but it's, you know, what does that have to do with Christmas? And uh, what, whatever. Or there's, there's other ones. I think of one, there's a song that, that is sung this time of year, and actually it's my mom's favorite Christmas song, so I love it because it's my mom's favorite Christmas song. But it's not sung in church. It's the Little Drummer Boy. I don't know. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. And it's, it's, a, it's a really really heart-touching heart, uh, song, but uh, I imagine that Mary would not have appreciated a drummer boy at the manger drumming away on a drum. Uh, but, but anyway... So we're going to look at this passage tonight. We're going to look in 2 Samuel 9. And at, at the first, maybe throughout most of this message, you'll think, okay, what's, what's this got to do with, with Christmas? Maybe not by initial reading of it, but I hope by way of application there are some principles or some parallels that we might see as a part of, of why Jesus came as we look in 2 Samuel 9 this evening. Uh, we read in verse 1 of Second uh, Samuel 9, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And that sounds too close to zebra, but that's how it's supposed to be pronounced according to what I heard. So, And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him. If you're in the habit of underlining anything in your Bible, just underline the kindness of God, just that part right there. That's a phrase that as I read through this, it seemed to almost jump off the page. I'd never noticed it before, but it's fascinating, the kindness of God. And Ziba said, or Ziba said unto the king, I'm faltering back on the pronunciation, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. That word Lodabar means without pasture. This is believed to be kind of a, a poor area in biblical times. I don't know if this is a, a word that's not good to be used, but the Wikipedia says it was considered a ghetto town in Bible times. So it was, it was not... It was, not the, it was not the royal city. It, it's a rough area. It was a poor area. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. And says, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, 
He fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, Behold, thy servant. We're going to stop right there for, for just a moment. I want to, want to walk through kind of this passage, uh, and I'll try to be cognizant of the time. Uh, so if I go too long, just start throwing things at, at me, and uh, I'll get the picture. Uh, but the scene is Jerusalem. If we were looking at some chapters previous to this, in chapter 7, we read in 2 Samuel 7, where David wants to build a house for God. And, and Nathan had said, go, go ahead and do that. But God had to tell David, no, you can't do that. Uh, that's, that's not your place. But then God says, I'm going to build you a house. And David has sat in God's presence. He's been overwhelmed at God's grace. And he says, who am I that you've brought me to this place? And David had been overwhelmed by God's grace from in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 8, we read that if we were to read that passage, which we won't, but it starts off with David fighting the Philistines. And throughout that passage, David is going from victory to victory with these enemies. So he's at the height of his kingdom. He's at the pinnacle of his kingdom. He's in his glory days, if you will. He's a victorious king. He's been blessed by God. He's been amazed by God's grace. The civil war that took place at the beginning of his reign is over. His... Uh, his running from Saul, those years are past. Saul is dead. He's at the top of the heap, if you will. He is the king of the hill, or even better. It's his glory days. But in spite of that, I want us to see his focus here. First of all, notice his focus in verse 1. He's at the top of, of his glory days. Everything's going well. He's been amazed by God's grace. He's had victory after victory. And we read in verse 1, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. I find that interesting. Think of how, how Nebuchadnezzar, when he was at his zenith of power, how it says he was walking in Babylon. He said, Is not this Babylon the great which I have built for the honor of, of my kingdom, for the honor of my majesty? And God had to take away his ability to, to function as a human being. He was like a beast. But, but Nebuchadnezzar got proud, and, and David here, he's not proud about where, he's, where he is. His focus is a selfless focus. He says, is there anyone left that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I find it interesting. He's at the top, but he's wanting to reach out to somebody in kindness. He's selfless. He's not thinking about himself. He's not puffed up with pride. I also think of not only there's this selfless focus, he's not all wrapped up in himself, there's also a forgiving focus. He says, is there any left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And that challenges, that challenges me. I don't know y'all's backgrounds, what you face in life. I might know some of you a little bit more than others. But I would imagine the majority, now there may be someone here that has had somebody that want, wanted to kill him. But I doubt that there's many people here, if any, that have spent years of their life on the run from someone that wanted to kill them, that actually was actively trying to kill them. That's what David faced. I read one, one place said it was seven years he was on the run from Saul, one said eight, one said 15, so I'm not sure what the chronology was, but there were many years of his life. And Saul was his own father-in-law. He married Michael, Saul's daughter, and yet Saul was trying to kill him. I was reminded, as I was thinking about this, about someone that showed kindness to someone that hated him. I was reminded of my grandmother. 
my, my father's mother, um, there were people in her life, she was a pastor's wife, and there were people that were hateful to her. And I found out from my dad several years ago that I think it was him uh, when he was going through her things, she, he ran across a prayer journal or prayer, uh, prayer book. And she had a list of all these people that she was praying for. And on her prayer list, there was a whole bunch of names of people that openly were hateful to her. But she wasn't praying that God would kill them. She was praying for God to bless them, for God to meet their needs. It's, it's too easy to get bitter when people treat us wrong. But David is not asking to, to find out about Saul's descendants because he's got a list, a hit list. No, he says, I want to show him kindness. So he's a, got a selfless focus. He also has a forgiving focus. I think about this too. Saul was on the hunt to kill David, and David is also on a hunt, but he's on the hunt to show kindness. What a contrast between Saul and David. No wonder David is called a man after God's own heart. So there's that selfless focus. There's also a forgiving focus. There's also a gracious focus. It says, I want to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. At this moment, David does not even know that, that Jonathan even has a son that's still alive. He may not know that Jonathan ever had a son because, remember, he was on the run for all those years. He was outside of Israel and in Philistia for a while. Uh, he, he wasn't on Facebook group with uh, Jonathan. I mean, they, so he had no idea. He had no idea. And, and he says, is there anybody that's left? Uh, so... It could be anybody in Saul's household. Saul had other sons. Maybe there's a son that is in hiding somewhere. But he says it's for Jonathan's sake. And I, he's doing it not on behalf of this descendant because he doesn't even know who it is at the time, doesn't know anything about him. It could be an absolute bum for all he knows. It could be a, a, just a hateful person for all he knows. But he's doing it on behalf of Jonathan. And I'm, I'm reminded of, and, and I wrote it down, I'm, I've, I'm, already, I'm already off on my notes. I'm already, uh, whatever. I have them. I'm not organized enough. Uh, my brain goes through rabbit trails too easily. But, but remember that David had promised Jonathan, Jonathan had made him swear, hey, look, when you come to the throne and your enemies are cut off before, before you, please don't kill my family. And David had promised Jonathan. This is grace. This is not doing it on behalf of, of the descendants. This is doing it on behalf of Jonathan. I think about what Jesus, what we get when we trust the Lord. It's not because of us, but it's because of Jesus. It's his, for, God treats us with kindness for the sake of Jesus, his son. It's not for our sake. So this is gracious. He says it's kindness for Jonathan's sake. But then also in verse 3, and this is why I said about underlying that word, the kindness of God. I want to picture God's kindness, the kindness of God. Do I reflect God's kindness, I wonder? Am I selfless? Am I forgiving? Am I gracious in my actions toward others, even those who've wronged me? I'm, I was reminded of this story. There's a little girl. She said to her grandfather, she said, is the, mule, is the mule a Christian? Her grandfather was a farmer, and her grandfather looked at her. He said, what do you mean is the mule a Christian? She says, well, he has such a long face. I mean, we get that stereotype, but do we act like that? I mean, really? Or are we selfless and gracious and forgiving? We need to be that way like David was. 
So he was selfless, he was forgiving, he was gracious, and he was faithful. And that goes us back to that, he says, for Jonathan's sake, that promise that we mentioned. And it was actually, if you want to write it down, it was in 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 17, where Jonathan had asked David to do this for him when he was gone, when he was dead. So there's the focus of David. But then if you would, there's the fugitive described, the fugitive described. We read in verse 3, he says, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul? And then we find that there's this man that, that knows about someone, and he comes before David, and he says, there's, there's a son of Jonathan who is lame on his feet. And then he says, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. The fugitive described... We're going to depart from this passage. We're going to go to a couple passages because we're going to get little tidbits of information about Mephibosheth as we find out this fugitive described. So would you turn to 1 Samuel 31? 1 Samuel 31. We learn a little bit more about this young man who's the son of Jonathan. And I would like to show that his life was, first of all, characterized by heartbreak. By heartbreak. First Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul. Now remember, that's Mephibosheth's grandfather. Upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan. His dad's dead. And Abinadab, his uncle's dead. And Melchishua, his uncle's dead. Saul's sons. In that verse, in that day, in, those, in just that one verse, dad is killed, two uncles are dead. When we go through verse 4, we're going to find out his grandpa takes his own life. One day, death hits Mephibosheth, just a five-year-old boy. I mean... It's, it's easy to get disconnected. This is, these are black words on a white page. But this was a real person that lived in history that literally experienced this. He's, he's in the line to become king. His grandfather is king. His father is the prince who is like the one that's next in line. And then it's little Mephibosheth who's the third. He's, he's going to be next in line. If things would go away that you expect. Now God had told Saul, hey, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And there's this major battle. And these Philistines, when we're going to read about what they did, uh, these guys are just as bad as Hamas. I mean, if, if you want to put it in perspective of, of what these guys are like. So basically... A group of folks like Hamas kills four of your family members, one being your grandpa, two being your uncles, one being your dad. So there's death in the family in one day. Then there's the disgrace. And we're back to, if you're still in 1 Samuel 31, I'd already moved away from there. Uh, disgrace. This is where I say these folks are like Hamas. Verse 8 Philistines find Saul and his three sons, verse 9, cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent him to the land of the Philistines round about, published in the house of the idols among the people. They put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose 
went all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, came to Jabesh and burnt them there. They took their bones, buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. These were four national heroes that have been killed by this atrocious group. Their bodies have been put out to public display so that this whole group could come and mock the God of Israel, mock Israel, and just revel in that. And there's this group of heroes that comes and takes them down and burns the bodies so they can't get a hold of them and, and puts their remnants, hides them to do honor to them. So there's this disgrace. Then there's the defeat. Not only had Israel been beaten before Philistia, but there was, in 1 Samuel 31, verse 7, you would find, if you were to read, that there were territory and cities that Israel had owned that they were driven from that Philistia had gotten. And then to cap it all off, when folks say it can't get any worse, there's disability. Would you turn to 2 Samuel 4? Maybe, I imagine most of you all know these, these truths, these facts. But, but just let's look at them and just try to think about this. This was a real person that this happened to. In verse 4, and Jonathan of 2 Samuel 4, 4, and Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. So he's a five-year-old boy when that, all that stuff took place, when he lost those relatives. I don't know if there's any five-year-olds in, in here or not, but there's probably kids that are close to that age. Uh, his nurse took him up. He fled, came to pass. She made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So there's not only the death, the disgrace, defeat, there's disability. Can you imagine what this nurse felt like? I mean, she's trying to do her best to make sure that this this young boy who's in line for the throne doesn't either get snatched up and killed by the Philistines if they get over in that area, or maybe someone that tries to move in on the monarchy doesn't try to kill him. I mean, that was common culture to do that, to wipe out the whole family. And she, whether she picks him up and runs with him or if he's running, I'm not sure exactly how it went, but he falls and he's permanently disabled the rest of his life. And I've wondered, what, what does that look like? What, what did his feet look like? How did he get around? I, I assume maybe he dragged himself around with crutches. I don't know what they had. But literally from the age of five, he's like, he's literally lost everything. And it says his nurse, I thought, well, where was his mom? Maybe his mom wasn't even alive by then. That's possible. I don't know. And we find one more thing, if, if that's not enough, destitute. 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 9. Now, when David is dealing with him in, in 9, verse 7, he says, uh, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. So he's lost not only his, his family members, his, his ability to move, but he's lost his possessions. Who got them? I don't know. Maybe it reverted to David at some point. Maybe someone came in and grabbed it. But he's in hiding. We're going to find that out. So there's that heartbreak. And it moves right into his hiding. And uh, we've kind of already talked about that. But why? It was because of the culture of that day, I believe. And I've, I've heard several preachers say that the, the, it was not uncommon for new dynasties when they came in, in the Bible times, to completely eliminate family members 
of the previous dynasty. We saw it with Athaliah. There was no doubt danger with Philistia. Who knows if they're going to flex their muscles and send in someone and kill little Mephibosheth. Who knows? But there was the danger of that. So there's the culture, but yet there's a contrast. David does not act like the rest of the world. We're going to find that out. So he goes into hiding. He goes into this place. He's whisked off at, at this early age. And I don't know, was he a place here and then somewhere else and somewhere else? And he finally lands in Lodabar. I don't know how many places he was before he got here. But when he's finally found, he's found in this, this area that's considered this impoverished area. It's in the north of Israel. It's across the Jordan. It's probably, it's a good ways away from Jerusalem. It's, it's far away, hopefully, and, and land that's still loyal to, to, to Saul, at least. He's in the house of a man that would have been loyal to Saul. And they do such a good job at hiding him that it's probably about 17 to 18 years after the events took place when Saul was killed before David even knows that, there, that he's alive, that there's even this young man named Mephibosheth. So he goes into hiding. He's the forgotten man. He's in the shadows. He's the heartbroken man in hiding. And I think about how there's no hiding from God. Psalm 139, God, thou hast searched me and known me. I'll bet you there's plenty of folks that we're going to come in contact with over Christmas, maybe at the store, that if we knew what their lives were really like, we'd probably be shocked. And they might be that person that's kind of forgotten in the shadows, that's had heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak after another. But God knows where they're at. And God loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. So there's the hiding. Now there's the hunt for Mephibosheth. One preacher says, love always takes the initiative. Jesus went looking for us. We find, he says, is, is there anybody, is there anyone that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? He says that I may show the kindness of God unto him. And I'm reminded of the song that says, in tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. While angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. And then Ron Hamilton's lost in the darkness. I stumbled alone. Far from the sunlight of day. Then Jesus found me and made me his own. He drove my darkness away. Before I loved him, he loved me. Before I found him, he found me. Before I sought him, he sought for me. Yes, Jesus cares for me. That's the thing. Remember? Adam sinned in the garden. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, as the old McGuffey readers used to say. We fell when Adam fell. We were disabled when Adam was disabled. We were far from God. Adam went hiding from God, but he couldn't hide from God. And God says, Adam, where art thou? And he says, I'm, I'm hiding in the bushes. But God did not pursue him because he was wanting to condemn him. He wanted to save him. And God is pursuing. Luke 19 the Son of Man is to come seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 15, you've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And it was the Pharisees that were so offended at Jesus that he was going after sinners and publicans. He, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. And he went on a wonderful search and rescue mission. King David would care and send and fetch, but Jesus, the king, 
stepped off his throne and laid aside his royal robes. He left the ivory palaces, came down to this earth, was born of a virgin, placed in a feeding trough, grew up in a poor home, raised in a despised town, and he died on that old rugged cross for you and for me. And he went so much farther than David went. It's incredible what David did. Whoever heard of a, uh, of a king going out looking for the children of his enemies so he could show kindness, but yet God did so much more than David did. He went to people that hated him, the people were sinners, people that were enemies, and he said, I'm going to die for you, to forgive you for your sins. So we read in verse 5, Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. I was trying to think in my mind what it would have been like for Mephibosheth when the royal messengers show up at his door, and you've literally been trying to hide from these guys for 18 years. I think they must have looked like the Lucan's boys. I, and I think that probably Brother Jesse, someone related to you, probably was like leading the pack. And they come up there. And, and Mephibosheth is like, oh, no, I'm dead. You know I can't run. And I'm, I, I can't hide because you found me. And, and they're like, David wants to see you. I'll bet he does. I'm dead. Well, I can't run, can't hide, can't fight, and I'm not dying of a heart attack right here. So, okay, I'm going. And as he's riding to Jerusalem, all I can hope for is mercy. <laughs> that sounds kind of like us, right? Can't run from God, can't hide from God, sure enough, can't fight him. Just want his mercy? Well, he's going to get his mercy and he's going to get so much more. And the fact is, David was already planning on showing grace and mercy and kindness. He didn't have to have Mephibosheth ask him to come up with a plan. We didn't have to ask God to come up with a plan. God's already got the plan. He's had it from day one. So, there's the hope given to Mephibosheth. We read in verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face. Like I said, I don't know if he had crutches or how he was able to drag himself around, but those are gone. He collapses before David and did reverence. He's terrified. What hope is given to this man? David said, Mephibosheth. By the way, it's interesting, one pastor has mentioned out, Throughout most of this account up till now, it said king, 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 king David, king David, king David. But then it says, and David said. David deals with him in grace. Mephibosheth, he says, behold thy servant. What's the first thing that he's given, this hope given? David said unto him these two words. And it reminds me of the Christmas story in Luke 10. In Luke 2.10, he says, fear not. Think of Luke 2.10, fear not. What the angel said to the shepherd, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. There's the gift of peace. The gift of peace. No longer has he to live in fear. No longer has he to live in fear like he has. And there's this song that I heard years ago, and it goes... Like this says, Mephibosheth, forever put your fears to rest. Come and be my table guest. To you I'll be a father, my son you'll always be. 
Mephibosheth, please accept the invitation. I have made all the preparations. Mephibosheth cried out, how can this be that a king could ever love someone like me? He gives him peace. And that's what God gives to every sinner that comes before him and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also gives him kindness. He says, I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. There's several aspects of this kindness. I think of this as unexpected kindness. Who would treat an enemy like this? And I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, 3, we're children of wrath, even as others. But Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, for if when we are enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Who does this for his enemy? Who does this for the son of an enemy? Who does this? God does it. I want to show him the kindness of God. This is also unsolicited kindness. He hadn't been looking for David to do this for him. David was the one that came up with it all. It's unimaginable kindness. When In verse 8, Mephibosheth says, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Verse 11, we read, The king says, He'll eat at my table as one of the king's sons who takes the grandson of the man that tried to kill him looks for him finds a guy that can do absolutely zero for him he can't march in his army he can't stand in his bodyguard he's got to drag himself around who knows what the guy looked like been in hiding he's probably really socially awkward <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, probably doesn't have any graces for the castle, for the palace. Who puts that and says, hey, look, pull up a chair. You're eating at my table. You're like one of my boys. I think Jesse would do that. Brother Jesse, you're a blessing. So it's unimaginable kindness. And this undeserved kindness, like I said, he couldn't march in his army, serve in his bodyguard. He could never pay for it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It was all a gift of grace from a heart of love. And that's what we've gotten from Jesus. So there's peace, there's kindness, there's restoration. We kind of already mentioned that. He says, I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. Hey, look, there's a big day of restoration coming. Adam lost it all, but we're getting it all back in Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, Revelation says, hey, there's no more death. There's no more, there's no more sickness. There's, there's not this and this and this and this. There's a whole list of things that aren't there because John said, I, I couldn't even describe heaven, but I can tell you what's not there. We're getting it all back. There's also fellowship. He says, verse 7, Thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And then verse 10, He shall eat bread always at my table. And verse 11, He shall eat at my table as one of the king's son. And then verse 13, For he did eat continually at the king's table. I kind of think David wanted him around. <laughs> I kind of think Jesus wants us around. Think about John 14. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Amen. How about that? So, there's the fellowship. And, and we've already alluded to this, but it's, 
we're kind of closing, coming to a close here. Not only is there's the focus of David, the fugitive described, but there's also the family of David. And this is where I say, this is the icing on the cake. We've already talked about it. Verse 11. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Lost your dad, Mephibosheth? I'll be your dad. You're part of, you know, your family was disgraced and defeated. Well, you're, you're not in Saul's family anymore. You're in David's family. You've got it all. You're in my family. And Brother Drew, that song you led, I'm adopted. I'm a child of the king. God is my father. He owns everything. He walks beside me. He's my very best friend. Praise God, I'll never be lonely. Again, my father loves me. He chose me, I know. He'll walk beside me wherever I go. He walks beside me. He's my very best friend. I'm adopted. Hallelujah. I've got a new song. I'm adopted. Hallelujah. I finally belong. I've got a brand new family overflowing with love. I'm a child of my father above. I think of the verses, and you say, okay, how's this got to do with Christmas? Okay. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. I'll read, read it. You don't have to turn there. I've gotten it, gotten it written down. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 3.26, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We could go on and on and on. I think of John 1.12. John 1.12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And one more. I just want to read this one real quick, if I can find it. Ephesians. This is pretty neat, too. Ephesians 2, we'll read verse 1 through 9. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Now look at this. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I think of this Second Samuel passage. David says, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? What a picture. An Old Testament picture of God's grace, of a king who reaches out to an enemy, Puts him in his family, 
unless I'm at his table for the rest of his life. And that's what God has done for us. And really, that's what Christmas is about. Jesus came down to earth, came to die for sinners that hated him, so he could put us into the family of God. What an what a incredible thing to think about. But as, we're, as we close, I just had a couple thoughts. And it's challenging to me because it's so easy to read this. And if you think about it, be moved by it and blessed by it. But we don't want to just end there. Because that's not just for me. It's just not for y'all. It's for everybody. And we're going to run across a lot of Mephibosheths. And we may not even have a clue. Sometimes we get mad at the Mephibosheths. They're all messed up. Well, yeah, they are. But God loves messed up people. And he died for them. So that's challenging me. Going in this Christmas season, hey, be on the lookout for Mephibosheths to tell about someone that loves them, that wants them as a part of the family. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had. Thank you for your grace. Help me, help us to reach out to others, to show them your love, to reflect you as we should, just like David did, and to tell others you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.